Well, good evening. My name is Tara. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love to meet you. I help lead the women's ministry here. Matt is my husband. He's an elder here. And it is such a privilege to have the opportunity to teach this evening. Go right ahead, sorry. As we continue in our series on the book of Job. A couple weeks ago, we were off last Wednesday night, but a couple weeks ago, Steve, where's Steve? He kicked off our series on the book of Job, and he just did such a great job kind of introducing the main plot line of the book of Job, and he talked about the spiritual warfare that was at play in Job's life. There's going to be two or three or four of us teaching through this series, and we've divided the book up into different topics. And so for the first week, Steve talked about Satan's direct attack on Job. And tonight, this evening, I got the topic to teach on Satan's indirect attacks on Job through Job's very own friends. And when I found out that this was my topic, I was like, okay, cool. I'm excited about that. I think the Lord can do something really cool with that. And then I realized something. Whereas... Satan's direct attack on Job is covered in two chapters. Satan's indirect attacks on Job through his friends is covered in over 30 chapters, y'all. 30 chapters. Walter, I felt like if anybody could feel me on this, you could feel me. I was like, what? Um, So how in the world am I going to teach on over 30 chapters in like 25 minutes Honestly, I'm still not sure, so buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride. My goal is to hit the highlights and hopefully hit them well tonight. But once the panic in my heart subsided, I realized something else. When we think about the book of Job, most often we think about kind of that main plot line, right? We think about God allowing Satan to to put Job in this situation. We think about Job losing everything, but then ultimately being restored. That's what we typically think about. That's what our minds naturally go to when we think about the book of Job, right? But I began to think, if the Lord saw fit to make 35 of these 42 chapters of the book of Job about Job's relationship and the counsel that existed between them, then it must be really important to the Lord how we counsel those who go through suffering. It must be really important to him to have made 35 of the 42 chapters about that. So before uh, we jump into the scripture, well, a couple of things. First, I want to point out that we should expect suffering in this life, okay? In recent generations, somehow that has got twisted, and and we think we are supposed to expect happiness and fulfillment, but the Bible assures us that that is not the expectation. We should expect suffering at times. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't rejoice through it, right? Because our hope is not in this world, so we can rejoice at all times, but we should expect suffering in this life. And when suffering comes... We need to be able to recognize good counsel when it is spoken over us. Okay, that's important. But also, we need to be able to provide good counsel to others when they are going through suffering. So before we jump into the scriptures, I want to give you two questions to kind of start mulling over this evening before we dig a little bit deeper. (coughs) Question number one. 
who is speaking into your life right now? Whether you're in good times or bad, whose voices are speaking into your life right now? And what kind of counsel are they providing you with? Question number two, whose lives are you speaking into? Whose lives are you speaking into? And what kind of counsel are you providing those people with? Tonight, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to identify if there are any indirect attacks from the enemy being thrown at us in our life through the people who are providing us with counsel. But the scary thing I also want us to consider is could our counsel in other people's lives be the means by which they may be being, may be being attacked? Now, that might not sit right with you at first, okay? It didn't sit right with me at first as I was thinking through these things in my mind as well. You may be thinking, well, I'm a follower of Jesus here. I mean, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. How could I be the means that the enemy would use to attack someone else? Not sure if that can happen. That may be what you're thinking. But I think scripture begs to differ. As I began to study and think about this, I thought of Peter. You all know Peter, right? Peter, Jesus' disciple, there was a time when Jesus was preparing the disciples for what was to come. He was telling them, hey, look, eventually I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be resurrected. He was telling them this. They had the inside scoop. They knew what was going to happen. And as Jesus is saying these things, Peter, he pulls him to the side, and he's basically like, Jesus, don't talk like that. Jesus, don't say these things. Does anybody remember what Peter, what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He said, Peter, you're being a stumbling block to me. Get behind me, Satan. Man, Peter loved Jesus, right? Peter followed Jesus. But Peter was still the means the enemy tried to use to cause Jesus to stumble. And if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to us too, right? So here in these 30-plus chapters of Job... God is going to show us what not to do if we don't want to be a stumbling block to others. He's going to show us what not to do when we are providing counsel to those who are suffering. And I think it's important that we pay attention. I think he has this message for us tonight for a reason. I think it's important that we pay attention. But before I think that we can take this topic seriously, I think we need a reminder of how terrible it feels to go through suffering. Very briefly... I want you to think about the worst time in your life, the time that you were in the most suffering. Now, we're not going to dwell on it. Shout out to our dwell series on Sunday mornings. We're not going to dwell on it, but I want you to let yourself think about it for a second. The worst time in your life, the time you endured the most suffering. Think about what that felt like for just a moment. Man, suffering is awful, isn't it? Suffering is terrible. It hurts so bad. And when we are counseling people who are walking through suffering, we have to remember what it actually feels like to suffer, right? Because that changes everything when we're able to empathize with them, when we're able to remember what it feels like. You can turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job was in a season of intense suffering. He was suffering to what seems like the fullest extent almost. Uh, If you weren't here a couple weeks ago when Steve taught, Job has lost his wealth. His children have died. He has lost his status and reputation in the community. And now he, he ends up losing his health as well. He's lost pretty much everything except his wife. 
who then tells him to curse God and die. I think we can all agree that is what not to say to someone who is suffering. That's definitely an indirect attack. But Job, he has lost it all. But through all this, the Bible says that Job does not sin. He doesn't sin. In fact, after the first bout of attacks he faces, uh, this is what he says. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. At this, Job got up, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head. He's publicly grieving him. Then he fell to the ground in worship. What? Like, what? And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Are you kidding me? Some of us, our basketball team loses, and we're like, God, why have you forsaken me? You know, like, Job has lost it all. He has lost it all, and he bows down and worships. And in all this, he doesn't charge God with any wrongdoing. Scripture makes Job's innocence very clear. He was blameless. Well, well, news travels fast, right? Especially bad news. And Job's friends hear about what Job has endured. And this is where we're going to pick up in Scripture this evening. This is going to be our focus tonight. Let's read together Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says this. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him. And comfort him. Those were their goals. To sympathize with him and to comfort him. But when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. Because suffering changes us, right? It changes us. They couldn't even recognize him. Then they began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him. Because they saw how great his suffering was. Man, they started off right. They started off on a good path, didn't they? Their motives were good. They wanted to sympathize and comfort Job. They wept with him, and then they just sat with him. Sat with him. Think about that. Not saying a word for seven days and seven nights. They were just present with him. If you want to know how to recognize good counsel in your own life, or if you want to know how to provide good counsel to somebody else, it looks a lot like that. Just showing up, just being present with people, weeping with those who are weeping, just being there. A lot of times when people go through suffering, really intense suffering, our response is to take a step back because we don't know what to say. We just, we don't know what to say. So So we don't say anything and we just take a step back. Don't do that. It's okay if you don't know what to say because a lot of times when people are in intense seasons of suffering, there is nothing you can say. You can vouch for that if you've been in one. There is nothing you can say, but you can be present with them. You can be there. In fact, it's when we start opening up our mouths sometimes that things can go south. And that's what happens with Job's friends. The tongue, it is a powerful thing. 
It has the power of life and death in it. And even though Job's friends had good motives, when they opened their mouth, y'all, they lacked good methods. And their counsel ends up doing anything but comfort Job. I already told you that this conversation between Job and his friends, it goes on for over 30 chapters, so there's no way we can take a deep dive into this tonight. But what I want to do is I want to kind of give you a bird's eye view of four fatal flaws that Job's friends had in their attempts to counsel Job. And these flaws made Job call them, quote-unquote, miserable comforters. And these flaws turned their counsel into indirect attacks from the enemy. The names of Job's friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, and then later on Elihu comes on the scene. You know how names recirculate throughout history? I am not surprised that these names have not recirculated through history. Don't know any Bildads down there in the kids' barn right now. But <coughs> Eliphaz, he goes first. He was the oldest, so seemingly the wisest. And he goes first with Job to counter back and forth. And at first, things aren't terrible. Uh, Eliphaz, he, he doesn't initially speak offensively to, to Job. Tempers are low. Compassion is still present. But as the conversation goes back and forth, things start to ramp up, okay? That's when um, tempers start to rise. Stones start being thrown at one another. Things get ugly once the friends realize that they don't agree with Job as to the reason why Job is suffering. So where did they go wrong? Where did they miss the mark? That's what I want us to look at tonight. I'm going to give you four ways to identify bad counsel. And the reason why we're talking about this tonight is so that we can be sure that we can recognize bad counsel when it comes into our life, but also so we can be sure not to give unwise counsel to others. I'm labeling this, though, four ways to provide bad counsel. So if you want to provide bad counsel, this is how you do it. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Number one. Four ways to provide bad counsel. Number one, think you know everything. Just think you know everything. Now, I know we don't walk into situations and we're like, I know everything. We may not say that, but a lot of times we sure do act like it, right? But y'all, there is almost always a backstory. There is almost always a backstory to people suffering. There is a backstory to the suffering that you've endured. People carry around with them so much baggage, right? Us in this room, we have brought in here with us so much baggage. There's almost always a backstory to suffering. There's more going on than just what meets the surface. And, you know, we don't even have to know what the backstory is. We just need to be aware of the fact that maybe there may be a backstory. Maybe we don't know everything that is going on. Job's friends are convinced that Job is enduring God's punishment. They believe he has to be guilty. Let's read quickly what Eliphaz says in Job chapter 4, 7 and 8. He says this to Job. He says, Consider now, Job, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. They're convinced this is the only possible solution. Job has to be being disciplined by the Lord. But there was a backstory they were unaware of, right? See, they didn't know. They didn't know about this whole conversation between God and Satan. They didn't know that God had actually permitted these attacks in an effort to prove Job's integrity. They didn't know. And that wasn't their fault, right? They, they couldn't have known. But they never even stopped to consider 
that maybe there was more to the situation than what met the eye. They never even considered that there could be any other reason other than the reason that made the most sense to them. So they walked right into Job's situation like they knew everything. But there's almost always a backstory. As a foster parent, I've become very aware of this fact. Uh, we have an almost three-month-old foster son right now, and we have the privilege of spending about three hours in the car with his biological parents a couple weeks ago. And, man, we learned so much about, about their lives, about their childhood, about things they've gone through. We learned so much about the backstory that led to their current suffering. Y'all, there is almost always a backstory. And when you counsel someone who is going through suffering, don't walk into that situation like you have it all figured out. Be aware that maybe there's more going on than you realize. You don't even have to know what it is. Just know that there could be more than what's on the surface and walk into that counsel with some humility in your heart, with some openness, realizing that you don't know everything. But if you want to provide bad counsel, just think you know everything. Also, if you want to provide bad counsel, number two, have faulty theology. Have faulty theology. Theology is just a a fancy word that describes what we believe about the nature of God. Who God is, what what God does. And Job's friends had, they were communicating some very erroneous ideas about who God is. And, And listen, that's a very dangerous thing to do when someone is going through suffering to communicate the wrong ideas about who God is. Basically, Job's friends, they believed in what we would call the retribution principle, okay? That means that good comes to those who are good and bad comes to those who are bad. And they say over and over again that they have seen this in in their lives. Like Job, we've seen this over and over again in our lives. People who sow good reap good. People who sow bad, they reap bad. And I'm sure they had. I'm sure they had seen that over and over again. But something that is often true is not always true. And it wasn't true in Job's case. But when counseling people, we can't be quick to cast blame, right? We can't. But what I really feel led to say is when we are going through suffering, when we ourselves are walking through suffering, we can't be quick to cast blame either. And do you know who I think we want to blame the most often? Ourselves. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And when we walk through suffering, we're like, man, I knew, I knew it. Like, I should have gone to church last Sunday, and now look at what I'm facing. Or, oh, I hit the snooze button on my alarm this morning, missed my quiet time, and now I'm having this huge issue at work. Man, I get what I deserve. Get what I deserve. Sometimes we view God like he is this tyrant ready to smash us when we step out of line. That is not your father. That is not your father. I had that view of the Lord for a long time. I did. I'm a a people pleaser. I have a perfectionist mentality. I never wanted to get in trouble with school. And so I treated God like I had to toe this line. And if I stepped off of it a tiny bit, he was just going to smite me. Man, I would have been smited a long time ago because I have stepped off the line so many times, but that is not who our Father is. And we cannot let that kind of faulty mentality cause us to walk in fear of a God who loves us so much. And we cannot let that kind of faulty theology cause us to kick 
other people when they are down, like Job's friends were doing. Sin does have consequences, that is true, but suffering is not always the result of sin. But if you want to provide bad counsel, then I recommend you have faulty theology. Think you know everything, have faulty theology. Also, if you want to provide bad counsel, just don't listen. Just just don't listen. I have this friend, her name is Jess, and she and I have been best friends since fourth grade. Fourth grade, our friendship has survived middle school, high school, college, even though we lived in different cities, married life, and now children. We don't even run like in any of the same social circles anymore, but we have made an effort to preserve this friendship for over 25 years now. It's a rare thing in this life, right? And usually she and I just meet up for lunch, just one-on-one together. But every Christmas, we have this tradition where we get our families together. And we celebrate Christmas together with each of our families. And we usually will go out to dinner and then go to the Speedway and lights or go in the gray lights, something like that. But about five years ago, we had planned our annual Christmas event. And this event's important to me because she's important to me. But the thing is, she has all sons, and I have daughters. And so before we would go on these these Christmas events, I'd give my girls a little pep talk because they have the personality types where sometimes they need that. So I'd give them a little pep talk like, hey, girls, I know you haven't seen the boys recently, but um, make yourself friendly. You've known them since you were born, okay? Make yourself friendly, have fun, play well with them. I would give them this pep talk. Well, that year in particular, five years ago, we get to dinner, and Ava is being so unfriendly, so unfriendly. Honestly, she's being more like just flat-out rude because not only was she not making an effort to talk to the boys, when they would talk to her, like, she would barely even respond. She wouldn't look at them. She's just, like, picking at her food, and so I give her the look. You all know the look. I can't do it now because I have to be provoked by it, but I gave her the look, and she knows the look. So immediately she's like, Mommy, I don't feel good. I'm like, oh. Typical cop-out when you get in trouble, right, is that you don't feel good. Um, So I'm aggravated, but the night continues. We go to the speedway, and you know when you get in the center of the speedway, there's all those rides in the middle of the speedway. Well, we get in there, and she's whining. She doesn't want to ride the rides with the boys. She's still not talking to them. She's still not being friendly with them. So I pull her over to the side to have a little chat with her. And we're having a little chat, and I'm explaining to her that she does not have a good attitude, and she's stuffing her face with kettle corn while I'm telling her this, because the girl loves popcorn. She loves popcorn. So she's just, like, stuffing her face with popcorn. And as I'm explaining to her that her attitude is terrible, she's like, Mommy, I don't feel good. I'm like, clearly, I'm not falling for this, right? You know, because you don't, if you're stuffing your face with kettle corn, you're fine. And so we're going back and forth. I'm like, just, all right, let's go. Do better. Do better. And so we go throughout the rest of the night. Doesn't change. Doesn't get any better. We get back in the car, and Mama is not happy. I am not happy. And I am like, Ava, tonight was important to me. It was important to me. And if you would have just put forth a little bit of effort And as I am speaking my profoundly convincing and well-stated arguments to my six-year-old, she has the audacity to interrupt me by expelling that kettle corn all over the back seat of my minivan. Yes, I drove a minivan. That's another story for another day, okay? All over the back seat of my minivan. And she ended up 
having a terrible stomach virus that lasted for the next 24 to 48 hours. She tried to tell me, but I wouldn't listen. I wouldn't listen. The evidence seemed to support what I was thinking, right? What kind of kid is hammering down on kettle corn when they have a stomach virus? Who does that? Ava, apparently. Um, So even though she tried to tell me, I just wouldn't listen. If you want to provide bad counsel to others, don't listen. Don't listen. If you want to see if someone is providing you with good counsel, Notice if they are actually listening to what you're saying. Or are they too busy coming up with their profoundly convincing and well-stated arguments like I was? Are they really listening to you? Job tried to tell his friends over and over again that he was innocent. He was telling them. Job chapter 27, verse 5 and 6, he says this. He says, I will never admit that you're right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. They wouldn't listen. Often when people are suffering, the thing they need most is just for somebody to listen. Somebody to actually listen to them. Not necessarily to have all the right things to say. Not to provide them with the best guidance. Just listen to them. And we just can't be so caught up in what we want to say because of our biased opinions that we miss it. That we miss it. If you want to provide bad counsel, think you know everything, have faulty theology, don't listen, and then number four, lack compassion. Lack compassion. Job's friends, they started off really good. They started off right. They went there to comfort Job. They went there to sympathize with Job. But once they realized that they didn't see eye to eye on everything, their compassion just went out the window. It went out the window, and that made them miserable comforters. Listen, we are not always going to see eye to eye with people. It's very rare, in fact, that we will actually see eye to eye with people on all things. Usually, we're not going to see eye to eye on everything, and we can't allow that to rob us of our compassion in Job's situation, it's easy for us to come to this conclusion because today we know the backstory. We know that Job was innocent, so of course we're like, they should have shown him compassion, those jerks. You know, like obviously they should have been compassionate. But what if Job wouldn't have been innocent? What if he wouldn't have been? Because the truth is, A lot of times in this life, suffering does come as the result of sin. Certainly not always, but often the Bible tells us sin has consequences. So a lot of times, suffering that people go through can be the result of sin. What then? I'm glad you asked. John chapter 8, for the sake of time, we won't read it. John chapter 8, Jesus, he's teaching on the temple steps. Y'all have been there. Been on those steps. It's real, really happened. He's teaching on the temple steps, and his disciples, 
are not his disciples, the religious teachers, they come to Jesus, they've set this trap, and they've caught this woman in the act of adultery, and they come and they bring her before Jesus, and they, they stand her before Jesus, and she's humiliated, humiliated, complete, in complete suffering. She's probably half naked, ripped out of this situation, so embarrassed, who knows what has led her to this place in her life, and she's literally scared to death, afraid that death is coming to her, because those religious leaders, they're saying, hey, Jesus, the law of Moses says that we're supposed to stone her. We're supposed to stone her. Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? And the Bible says that Jesus stoops down and he starts writing in the ground and they don't stop. Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? And then Jesus finally speaks up and he says, let the one of you without sin cast the first stone and one by one they went away starting with the oldest until only the one without sin was left Jesus and he says woman where are your accusers and she says they're gone and so he says neither do I condemn you Go and leave your life of sin. She wasn't innocent like Job. Not even close. Completely guilty. No questions asked. Completely guilty. So what about those people? What do we do then? We show them the same kind of compassion, mercy, and grace that has been given to every single one of us in this room right now. We put down our stones, we stoop down to where they are, do whatever we can to try to rescue them out of that situation, and then we point them to the truth, to go and sin no more. But innocent or not, our response is still the same. Compassion, mercy, truth, always. That's what he showed us how to do. That's what we've experienced. I know I have. That's our Jesus. Our first question tonight, not our first, we're going to do the second one first, but the second question I asked you was, whose lives are you speaking into right now? Whose lives are you speaking into right now? And I want to be clear on something. You should be speaking into people's lives. Should be. Um, One of the questions Dallas always asks us at our weekly staff meeting is, who are your three? Who are the three people that you're discipling? Who are the three people that you're walking alongside of, pointing towards Jesus? Because that's what we're called to do, right? To make disciples. So if we're doing this, it is inevitable that we will be speaking into people's lives as they walk through suffering, because suffering is inevitable. So think about your three. And what kind of counsel are you providing them with? Are any of these fatal flaws present in your counsel? If so... The good news is if we can repent of that and our God is a God of restoration and forgiveness and we can just correct the path, man, and he will help us do that. His spirit will help us do that. The second, the first question I asked you was, um, who is speaking into your life right now? If you are going through a time of suffering in your life right now, a time of indirect or direct attacks, I want you to take note of the voices that are speaking into your life? Are any of these flaws 
present in those voices? Are any of those voices voices that you need to just shut down? Because if there are attacks coming your way through the counsel that you are receiving, then I would encourage you to do that, to, to shut that counsel down, to not continue exposing yourself to that any longer. Instead, do what Job did. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to the reality of that situation. Hold on to whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is good. You hold on to the truth and you shut out the rest of the lies and then seek after the only voice that really matters. Seek after the only voice that you can count on no matter what. Job kept saying over and over again throughout those 35 chapters, I want to hear from the Lord. I want to hear from the Lord. I heard you, Elihu. I heard you. I, I, I heard all you guys, but I want to hear from the Lord. I love it the way he says it in Job 13. This won't be on the screen, but he says this. He's like, look, guys, my eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard it and understand it. Everything you know, I know. I get it. I'm not inferior to you. Yet I prefer to speak to the Almighty. I prefer to argue my case before God. That is what Job says. When all the other voices are competing, go to the voice that really matters, the only voice you need to hear. Job knew what voice he needed to hear. Don't get me wrong, wise counsel is good. It is good, and it is so important. But there is only one voice that will be the ultimate balm to your soul. There is only one voice that can, that can speak healing over heartbreak. There is only one voice that can bring light into darkness, and it is his voice. It is his voice, so seek after that voice. Above all the other ones, seek after that voice. Charles Spurgeon said this, It's a hard one. He said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Hallelujah. I'm learning that slowly. Very slowly, I'm learning to kiss the waves that throw me into the rock of ages. Because if if the suffering that we go through throws us against our Savior, then how can we not count it all joy? Worship team, you guys can come. If you are going through a time of suffering in your life right now, man, we would love to be the kind of friends who just meet you there and sit with you in it. We would just pray over you and just sit with you in it. We may not have the words to say, but we would love to just be present with you. This is a family. That is who we are. Or maybe tonight you're tired of hearing from all the other voices. And tonight you just want to speak with the Almighty. Man, if that's you... He welcomes you to come to him. That's the thing about our God. When you seek him, you find him. We'll hear the rest of the story in a few weeks. God shows up. God shows up like he always shows up. And if you need to speak to the almighty man, you will find him. Let's pray and then we'll worship together. Father, you are a good, good father. Lord, I thank you that... There's no wave that is too big. There's no suffering that is too great. God, your strength, your loyalty, your love for us, it holds constant. It is an anchor through any storm, God. And I know that sometimes the suffering causes us to back away from you because we start to fear you and we start to wonder if you have our best interests in mind because why would you allow certain things? God, I pray that in this moment, instead of backing away, instead of cowering away, God, I pray that we would draw close to you in trust and in faith that you are a good, good father and that that truth holds our hearts despite any other voices, any other lies that may be coming our way.
Jesus, we love you and we thank you for all these things. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can stand.